Good morning. It's Monday, the 3rd of July, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and most rocking city in the world when it is not pouring cats and dogs. Our top reports and themes. HDFC's top 3 are gone. What will HDFC Bank's new culture be like? India's bank deposit profile shifts as people put money for shorter periods. Do you have an India strategy? A latest HBR report. Apple hits 3 trillion dollars in market capitalization. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. What is the new HDFC bank going to look like? Many years ago, into my first job, I visited Ramon House, the HDFC or the now HDFC Bank's headquarters in Churchgate in South Mumbai. I was looking for a possible loan and to understand what it would take and whether I would qualify. With some trepidation that I would be shown up for my lack of savings, I first asked around if anyone knew anyone. Turned out that no one did, and everyone, including senior journalists, told me the HDFC system of interacting with customers or potential ones was pretty objective and straightforward. I visited Ramon House again as a customer 2 years ago and was struck that almost nothing in the building had changed in almost 25 years. The area where you wait to meet a loan officer who are spread around on desks is almost the same except for a few spots of brightness and newness here and there. The loan officers were as friendly and efficient as before. It did strike me that for all the wealth and that's billions and billions of dollars HDFC had created in the interim and piles of cash in hand very little of it seems to have found its way back to building a swankier office by the way the name board on ramon house now says hdfc bank it was changed overnight on the 1st of july and the same is being now done across the country click hdfc.com and it will take you to hdfcbank.com so the transition is been swift and complete Of course this has been on the anvil for almost a year so everyone has had time to prepare. Now there is an interesting transition moment here which people may or may not have noticed. Three senior people who helped build and scale HDFC are all out at one shot. Deepak Parekh was chairman emeritus and has stepped down. Keki Mistri who ran the resource side of the business among other things as well as vice chairman and CEO has stepped down and so has Renu Sood Karnad widely credited with the operational growth and excellence in service that HDFC is so well known for all three have effectively retired keki mistri and renu karnad will however join the HDFC bank board but as independent directors now one story goes that since HDFC could not compete on interest rate or scale with banks and other borrowers in the early 90s it decided to focus on trust and by taking a gamble of sorts the move was led by then executive directors nasir munji who later started and ran idfc and deepak satwalekar who moved on to set up hdfc's insurance businesses possibly among others basically hdfc would give away deposit certificates to anyone who walked into their office and wrote out a check now this was obviously unheard of since others would take 6 weeks or so to mail the deposit certificates after obviously the check had cleared and here was an institution handing it out in advance even before the check cleared but this among other moves laid and expanded the foundation for making trust the focus of a message and as a follow on the building of trust through word of mouth and experiences in the early 2000s icici bank under kv kamath had aggressively stepped up its home loan business including using direct sales agents for home loans somewhere in late 2003 
ICICI Bank overtook HDFC in disbursements. A big development at that time because HDFC for a long time had appeared unchallenged. ICICI Bank apparently went to town on the matter with advertisements saying that they were number one and so on. HDFC insiders say a month or so later, they overtook ICICI again. Happy with the turn of events, a new campaign was created with advertising agency FCB Ulka and the teams trooped into Deepak Parekh's office, who promptly shot it down, saying putting out advertisements, particularly in this context, was a waste of time, energy and money, or words to that effect. Parekh's approach was that when it came to HDFC, people and its customers had to recognize that it was the leader and not advertisements. HDFC did and does do its share of messaging and has worked with agents. It has 20,000 active ones and 50,000 in all, but they work on sourcing deposits and capital for HDFC rather than source customers for their loans. What their precise role will now be will be interesting to see since as a bank, the process of raising deposits is different, though it does need marketing push. To come back to the transition now. Culture, as illustrated partly by the above two anecdotes, is a critical component of what makes HDFC and now HDFC Bank what it is. The two components in this case are obviously a certain degree of empowerment and second, a certain degree of understatedness, including in the way it built on experiences and trust rather than anything else. The departure of the trio will surely mean some kind of culture transmission gap, particularly at this time. On the other hand, Arvind Kapil, who is HDFC Bank's country head for unsecured home, mortgage and working capital loans, is tipped to be taking over the home loan part of the merged entity or, as I could see, Renuka Sudkarnath's core portfolio. Now, Kapil is an old HDFC hand himself, having been around for about 25 years after joining from GE Countrywide. But Karnat's portfolio also included overseeing HR, communication, customer relationship, management, and credit risk. Now, this will all likely get split up between different hands in the new HDFC bank. One thing that most HDFC senior managers don't do is to talk and engage freely with media, except on very specific, mostly product-linked announcements, like I noted for Kapil, who has spoken on 10-second loans and 30-minute car loans, all products that HDFC bank has launched and would have liked people to know about. At a later point, I will visit such products, the outcome of what seems to be pressure from collapsing fintech companies rather than genuine consumer demand. HDFC has mostly spoken through Deepak Parekh and KK Mystery. Between the two, for more than a decade, it's been the latter who speaks for the company and usually speaks off balance sheets and profit and loss statements rather than too many subjective statements. Karnad, who I have encountered a few times, seems to totally abhor any kind of formal media interaction, or for that matter, even informal. The same broadly goes for most, if not all, of HDFC bank folk. Aditya Puri, who built and took HDFC bank to where it is, rationed his public appearances and interactions, and even post-retirement from HDFC bank has maintained a similar profile. The new entity, and more importantly, the people in it, led by Managing Director and CEO Shashidhar Jagadishan, who joined HDFC Bank in 1996, have roughly similar personas, at least optically and from my vantage point as a financial journalist. Jagadishan said on Saturday that post-merger, which came into effect on July 1st, HDFC Bank would grow at an accelerated pace, which could create an HDFC Bank every four years and will add some 1,500 branches every year for some years. 
The strategy with this new combined entity is obviously to cross-sell and create deeper bonds and linkages with customers of loans and depositors and then to other services HDFC offers, including mutual funds elsewhere. Now, how all this will play out is a little early to say, so I will not get into it. According to Bloomberg data, just to give you a sense of scale, this merged entity will have a market capitalization of $172 billion, the most after JP Morgan Chase, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, or ICBC, and Bank of America. It will be the second highest in India after Reliance Industries, which is around $210 billion. By the way, HDFC might seem like a giant because of its age, origin, and pedigree, but it has only 4,000 employees. HDFC Bank, the child of HDFC since August 1994, having started in a single room in the same Ramon House building, though on a different floor from the one I visited, today has over 140,000 staff as per figures from last year and the number should be much higher today. India's Shifting Deposit Profile Sticking to banks but more on banking, it's a little early to jump to conclusions, but something interesting is happening in the way Indians are putting their money into banks, or perhaps not. A quick background. Banks have been a key vehicle for savings protection and small growth, mostly through fixed deposits, still trusted by most Indians. India's aggregate savings rate for 21-22 is at about 30%, which peaked around 37% in 2010, and went down and now up again. In recent years, financial savings have been seeing a shift with most households pouring their savings into mutual funds, equity and real estate, the last of which has seen a sharp jump. The share of mutual funds in household financial savings stood at 6.3% last year. A report authored by researchers at the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy says that during the past five years, savings in physical assets ranged between 58 to 60% of household savings and last year, the share of savings in physical assets jumped to 65%. Now, Kotak analysts say that they are surprised at the sharp change in consumer preferences towards this one to three year bucket. So what does this mean? I thought I could use this opportunity to delve into this and to get some broader insights into what's happening in the deposits landscape in India, what's changing, what's not, and what we could take away at this point. To do that, I caught up with MB Mahesh, Director at Kotak Securities, who also leads the banking analyst team, and began by asking him to define the deposits landscape. Just to give you a broad backup, if you look at the Indian banking system, it's about 180-odd lakh crore deposit market. We've been kind of growing, if you look at the long-term trends around uh, the deposit book, for the last 50-60 years, we've been growing at about a little over 15 odd percent out there. It's kind of broadly broken up into three buckets. One is the current account, one is the savings account, and one is the term deposit side. Current account is the corporate scheme, which SME borrowers uh, kind of keep it for their regular daily activities on the corporate side. Savings is what you and I keep in our bank accounts, and term deposits is what we keep for a long term. The market is broadly split about give or take approximately about little over 45% in the CASA book and it's about 55% in the term deposit book. What is CASA? CASA essentially stands for current account and SA stands for savings account. CASA essentially is the transactional side of deposits that most of us keep, which is what we discussed a little while earlier. For a bank, it's very important for them to source CASA because uh, these deposits are low cost in nature and hence it provides the maximum profits for them. But from a consumer standpoint, CASA tends to be a little bit of a lower interest rate product. And hence, they use it only for transactional purposes and not for long-term purposes. 
So if you look at the book as such, it's about, give or take about 180 lakh crores, growing about 15%, 45% in current account savings account, mostly savings, less current, and the balance is in term deposit side. That's a broad landscape of the Indian banks. If you look at the structure of those deposits, it's kind of moved in line with the way you've seen growth between public sector banks and private sector banks. Right. Now, in this breakup that you just mentioned and the growth, what's changed either significantly or otherwise in the last uh, decade or so? What's interesting is that we see the preference for current account savings accounts is much higher in the last decade. Now, it's hard to establish a very clear trend as to what could define the savings behavior of individuals. Probably in the last decade, interest rates has been on a, on a declining trend. The difference between what savings account offers and term deposit offers is probably lower. And hence, probably the preference to own savings account, to keep your deposits in savings account is probably much higher. Or it could be very simply that many of these consumers are gradually coming into the banking behavior in the first place. And hence, the preference is probably to keep more savings account as compared to current account. And the reason why I make the second statement is that when you look at the deposit book outside of the metro markets, CASA share tends to be extremely high. It can be as high as 50 and 60% of deposits. It just tells you that the sensitivity of the savers to keep their deposits in term deposits is not high at all. Whereas if you look at the metro market where probably banking behavior is a little bit more evolved, there probably the tendency to save in term deposits starts kicking in once the interest rate differential is meaningful enough. But these are guesses from our side. We probably need more data to confirm this trend. But this is what we see over the last decade at least. And what's changed particularly in the last year or two? What is interesting now is that um, ever since COVID happened, you saw consumers or savers starting to save a little bit more. So we saw a spurt in deposit creation around 2020-2021. And now what you're seeing is that the current account savings account growth has massively slowed down. On the other hand, we see a marked pickup in term deposits at least, which essentially means that the banking system as a whole is offering higher interest rates and consumers are responding by keeping it in term deposits. What is interesting this year is that the growth rate that you see in households continues to remain very weak. We don't know what has caused this, but what you see is that if you broadly break up the deposit book in one more cut, you break it up between who's saving it by ownership. You look at households, which is people like you and me. You look at corporates. You look at the financial side, which is essentially companies like insurance companies, mutual funds. They do park money in deposits, as well as the government. What we essentially see is Household savings has been consistently declining. Corporate savings looks reasonably okay. Government savings has not been as high as what it used to be in the past. This is not good news for now because you ideally need a robust household savings out there. Otherwise, you are seeing a situation where bulk of the deposits is coming from the corporate side, at least for now. Probably corporate balance sheets are good and hence you're seeing it. But from a trend perspective, to answer your question, we are A, seeing more people putting money in term deposits, more deposits getting created from the corporate side rather than the household side. And it is interesting to note that if you look at the overall deposits on the term deposit side, 50% of the deposits today is contributed by non-households rather than households out there. That's the structure of the market that we have. It tends to be a little bit less stable as compared to what you typically get out of a household. And, and what's the macro takeaway from this, uh, Mahesh, particularly on the household side? I would say that, look, at some point of time, it's not good news because we are probably in a situation where the savings is not as strong as what it used to be. Whereas on the other side, when you look at the household leverage, it does appear that 
we are kind of taking more debt as compared to what it used to be in the past. So we see on one side, when you look at the banks, uh, the loan book side, you see a lot more loan going to individuals. Whereas if you look at the deposit side, you see less savings coming from the household side. So I think broadly, it kind of points to an indication that uh, probably leverage at the household level is increasing with each passing year. Is it a point of concern? Probably no. But directionally, these are not particularly great news as well. You're also saying that corporate deposits are strong and continuing to be so, which somehow suggests that businesses are doing well in India, but individuals are not in a very rough way. That is true. Or we uh, see, uh, unless otherwise we can prove the point that we are saving excessively through other products. Like, you know, if you're moving it through insurance, you're putting a lot more money on insurance. If you're putting a lot more money in debt mutual funds. If channel of savings is happening through other formats, then probably bank savings is a little bit lower. But there too, we are not able to establish that clear trend, which kind of points out to the fact that household savings is actually that solid enough. I mean, people have been talking about migration into mutual funds, for example, in the last few years with the bull market and so on. So you're saying that the two are not really connecting. Um, it's still not pointing to the fact that we have materially changed our savings behavior. If you look at the deposit book or the debt mutual funds, and if you add that up as well, so far, it's not kind of conclusively pointing out to a fact that household savings has actually gone up. It probably is still a little bit on the weaker side. And you were saying that for the first time, you also have an age profile now in terms of deposits. And you've been doing this for a decade, this study of uh, the banking sector. So you've always been kind of wondering as to who is saving out here. And it's hard to get those data. Surprisingly, this time RBI did point out to what is the nature of savings that we're doing. What we see interesting is if you break it up into two parts. One is you look at the savings book and the other one you look at the term deposit book. In the savings book, what we see is there is a fairly large representation of people who are between the 25 to 40 years of age. So approximately a quarter of our savings account book comes from the age profile of 20 to 40. And if you add 40 to 60 to it, that number goes up to somewhere closer to about between uh, 70 odd percent. Now, when you look at the term deposit book, you see an extremely low representation from the 25 to 40 years. What used to be quarter of the loan book on savings account side, when you go to the term deposit book, that comes down to 15 odd percent. But that is not an unexpected outcome because you have wealth which is getting created once you cross 40 and 50 years of age. So at the term deposit book, you see about 20% of our deposits term deposit book is from people who are above 70 years. You have 25% of the book who are between 60 and 70 years. And you have 40 to 60, which is about 35%. So which essentially means that 80% of our term deposit book just comes from these three age buckets out there. And there is an underrepresentation from the 25 to 40 years. But again, this is not surprising. What we are essentially kind of looking at is to see how the long-term trends looks like. And if there is a slowdown that you're seeing in the household side, Probably on the next few years, we will be able to establish which part of the age profile is actually saving more and which part is saving less. Anecdotally, what you hear is that um, consumers have started to spend a lot more post-COVID. So they are probably drawing down on the excess savings that they did out there. We still don't have very clear evidence to prove it one way or the other. Right. Last question. You know, this 70 plus, this seems to be an interesting category. I mean, how does this profile of uh, depositors behave or has behaved? We don't know. This is the first year that we have got this data. But if you look at one more interesting trend on the term deposit side, what we have seen is that people have started saving for a much shorter duration as compared to what it used to be in the past. 
So if you look at, you know, 10 years back, you would have deposits which are above five years, three years to five years. Today, what we are seeing is the preference to keep our deposits in the one to three year bucket is probably the highest that we have ever seen ever since this data has been released by the RBI. Does the average consumer believe that his ability to hold deposits beyond one to three years is low? Or is it a fact that banks are probably pricing their deposits in such a way that the preference to keep it in one to three year buckets is higher? We really don't know which of the two is causing it. But what we definitely know is that the preference to keep it in one to three years is probably the highest that we have seen in the last close to about two decades now. Interesting. Uh, Mahesh, thank you so much for joining me. Do you have an India strategy? I seem to find a bullish India report every alternate week. This time, it's focused on why MNCs or multinational corporations must invest in India pronto. Does your company have an India strategy? Ask a group of academics led by Vijay Govindarajan of Tuck School of Business and an executive fellow at Harvard Business School and also with Rajendra Srivastava, Anup Srivastava and Aman Rajiv Kulkarni. Rajendra Srivastava used to be dean at the Indian School of Business earlier where I have had the opportunity to interview him. As I pointed out last week, when I spoke of Procter & Gamble and clothing brand Uniqlo stepping up investments, many already are and broadly for the same reasons the authors have highlighted. But there are some interesting points here. Also remember that with the market hitting new highs, well, what could you say? Just to refresh our memories, the BSC Sensex closed 803 points or 1.26% higher at 64,718 on Friday last week. And the NSC Nifty gained 217 points to end at 19,189, all record highs, of course. Now, to come back to the report that I was referring to, it starts by pointing out that at the end of financial year 2022, the price to book ratio for European consumer products giant Unilever PLC stood at 6. The same number for its subsidiary in India, Hindustan Unilever, was twice that at 12. Now, the difference, according to the authors, is not because the Indian subsidiary is young or small. On the contrary, the Indian subsidiary is a 90-year-old company with a market capitalization of $76 billion. Nor is this an isolated instance. Nestle SA, the world's largest food and beverage company giant, based out of Switzerland, has a price-to-book ratio of 6. Its subsidiary in India has a price-to-book ratio of 82. 3M USA has a price to book of 4.2, the Indian subsidiary is 12.7. The German parent of BASF, a global leader in specialty chemicals, has a price to book ratio of just 1, the Indian subsidiary has 4. The German parent of Siemens has a price to book of 2, the Indian subsidiary has 10. The differences are so vast, the authors argue, that in some cases, the Indian subsidiary may be valued more than the parent on a standalone basis. Now, obviously, this is a calculation. It's quite logical that companies internationally are so big that they cannot grow so fast. But the chasm, their words, not mine, is because Indian firms have better growth prospects, higher profitability and more efficient asset utilization, all the while when the parent languishes in its home market. That's why the authors say every multinational must have an Indian strategy or else it will miss out on one of the most promising market opportunities in the world, they say. Now, switching to growth, over the last five years, the compounded annual growth rate or CAGR in revenues for Unilever India was 9.6%, four times faster than its 2.2% Unilever parent. Note that the parent's growth rate includes that of the Indian subsidiary, without which its growth rate would be even lower. 
Turning to profitability, return on assets for the Indian subsidiary, we're talking levers, is 11% against 8% of the parent. What is surprising, say the authors, is that a higher profit margin for the Indian subsidiary of 17% against 13% of the parent. It is surprising because Unilever's products are priced cheaper in the Indian market because obviously of a lower purchasing power of its target segments. Now, higher profits could be because of higher market concentration and pricing power, but that seems unlikely, say the authors of the report, because of fierce competition from several sources, including other multinationals such as Colgate and local competitors like Patanjali and the availability of numerous cheaper alternatives addressing the same market, including from the informal sector. The higher margin is therefore most likely because the cost of production and distribution is lower in India, which is indeed the case. Now, the same story plays out for other multinationals. Nestle India earned a profit margin of around 14% as against that of its parent of 9.8% and did so while generating sales to assets ratio of 196% as against 69% for its parent. There are some similar numbers for Siemens India and broadly these numbers show that almost on all fronts, that's market growth, asset utilization and profitability, the Indian market offers more attractive prospects than the home market for the multinational. So in order to make hay while the sun shines, and those are my words, so to speak, the authors argue MNCs must do three things. First, make significant resource commitments to India. Second, customize products and service to local culture, values, and so on. And third, leverage the India stack for payments and digital payments. Now, the third one is obviously the newer one, perhaps from what we've heard in the last two decades ago, from those including consultants looking at India from outside. Now, all of this is obviously being done by the examples mentioned earlier, and which is why they are where they are and is reflected in their performance. I would add to this one more factor, which is governance premium, which MNCs clearly enjoy in the stock markets. I would also add some caution more for those who are listening to this rather than the MNCs who obviously know better because they have been on ground for decades. The Indian market can deceive in size versus actual buying power. The way to approach it is to grow with the market over time rather than throw money at it, to bribe consumers as it were, as many now collapsing venture capital funded companies are discovering and have done and quite likely are yet to come to terms with, which is the reality that is the Indian market. And amongst other news, Apple, just in case you missed it on Friday, became the first company in the world to close with a market value of more than $3 trillion. Close to India's GDP as it happens, though these figures are quite literally apples and oranges. Apple is now worth almost double the value of longtime rival Google and seven times that of energy giant ExxonMobil, which was the world's most valuable company for many years, the Wall Street Journal said. And finally, before I go, some good news. The presumptive 20% tax on international credit card spends, subsequently relaxed above 7 lakh, has now been put on hold by the government. The detailed, long and somewhat confusing notification, as I could read it, still leaves the door open to do it later. But overall resistance, including from banks who said that their systems could not manage this now, has worked. Now, there are many other categories, including spending for education and health, all of which must be understood by reading that detailed circular. But for now, India would have been the only country in the world to tax its citizens, even presumptively, for using their credit cards overseas, although they could have netted it off at the end of the year. Most business people complained that the 20% tax was an added headache, also because the reason for which was not clear to anyone. 
they of course were generally alluding to all other regulatory headaches that they had to face. That's it from me. Have a great Monday and a week ahead. Hope to get some of your feedback on govindraj at thecore.in. See you tomorrow. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.